Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Audacious on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is an extended conversation I had with Mehdi Hassan. He's the host of the Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC's Peacock, and his latest book is called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. Whether you're in politics, finance, entertainment, or any field whatsoever, if you come onto his show, you'd better be prepared. Mehdi and his team are known for having all of the receipts. He never shies away from an argument and makes a point to hold politicians and public figures to account. And much to the chagrin of his guests, he loves to win. So I asked Mehdi the same question I asked interviewers Gail King and Ziwei, whom we also spoke with for this episode, and whose extended interviews you can check out on our podcast feed. How much was the little kid version of him exactly as he is now at 44? Seven-year-old Mehdi was it was indeed exactly like uh, sadly forty-four-year-old Mehdi, with the difference of probably seven-year-old Mehdi enjoyed to argue, debate, and question, but probably didn't do as much preparation and hard work as forty-four-year-old Mehdi. But I was the kid uh, who you see in the movies and the TV shows who says, "But why? But why? But why?" You know, won't take the first answer from the parents. Uh, for granted, always has a follow-up. Even as a child, uh, I was obsessed with follow-up questions. See, when I think about the work I do, my my focus is to get people to talk about their feelings, about what they've been through. And most people are into that. Otherwise, they wouldn't agree to the show. But you have an intimidating, to some, offer when you ask a guest to join. How do you navigate that? Like When someone's like, I'm not quite sure if I'm up for this task, do you and your teams try to convince them to come or is it uh, something else? It's a great question. Well, in terms of kind of the intimidating this, when I moved to the Washington DC area from the UK about eight years ago, I, I ended up befriending a bunch of people who knew of me from my days in the UK, my days working for Al Jazeera English internationally. And, and a lot of the responses thankfully were, oh wow, you're not as intimidating in person as we thought you were. So I think the TV face, Probably doesn't help me. I write in my book about how the fact that I have RAMF, which I call resting angry Muslim face, which doesn't really help me uh, as a male Muslim in the media interviewing people because I look angrier than I am uh, sometimes. Uh, so it is a challenge uh, to get certain people on the show. Um, with the people who don't want to come on, the case I, I always make and my I, my producers always make is, look, we are tough, but we are fair. Uh, you will get tougher questions on my show than you'll get elsewhere, but you also get more time. Uh, you'll get, you know, we we do extended longer interviews than most folks do, which guests like often. And, um, you know, it's a challenge for the guest. A lot of the appeal for a lot of people is they like, you know, especially people on the political right, uh, enjoy a bit of an argument. And, you know, the most recent bout I had on my own uh, MSNBC streaming show on Peacock was with Vivek Ramaswamy, the Republican presidential candidate. And in that case, people are surprised when I tell them he volunteered to come on the show. We didn't invite him. He challenged me on Twitter. He said, why don't you have me on? And I said, OK. Um, and we had him on and it didn't go so well for him, but it was his choice to come on the show. Yeah, in 2010, you made $750,000. You had the money to pay for law school. You didn't need a Soros affirmative action scholarship that you now yeah, criticize. I mean, 
none of this is worthy, but if you think it is, let's get to the detail. That was well, actually I, the I, first big piece you say you're anti-affirmative action. Was, well, you took a scholarship for immigrants I'm anti-affirmative action. So why did you take a scholarship so which, for the children which of immigrants? Which falsehood would you like me to address? The financial one or the or the one about my views on affirmative did, action? Because I can go in whichever not, order you'd like. Did you not make $750,000? piece of it. Not at, not at the time that I had applied for the scholarship yes, you did. that fall. Yes, you did. That December. Yes, you did, on December, This, Nettie, is, this I, is awkward for you because you me, did. This, I've got the tax returns in front no, of my face. No, it's not awkward for you. Yes, uh, on walk, December walk 31st, when the application for the scholarship... When people agree to come on the show and they show up, I know you have a finely attuned sense of emotion, vibration, presence. If somebody shows up to be on your show and they come across as fearful, nervous... Does that affect how you treat them? <laughs> I guess it depends who it is. Uh, context matters, right? So if it's a GOP presidential candidate and they're nervous because of something I've asked them, that means I'm doing my job. That's a good thing, right? If Vivek Ramaswamy looks deer in the headlights because I've got his tax returns in my hands that he didn't expect me to have, then that's great. I'm doing my job. And it's it's all fair in love and war and interviews. Um, if it's, you know, if it's not someone who's traditionally a public figure, you know, I've interviewed quote unquote real people. I've interviewed, you know, victims of trauma and, and people whose partners or family members have died. Um, you know, that's a very different situation, obviously. There you're trying to help the interviewee uh, just have the best possible conversation uh, without exploiting them or without disrespecting them. So it depends where and when you are in that situation. It does amuse me when people turn out to be nervous, not because they know who I am, but because they don't know who I am. And that's happened to me a few times where people just don't prepare. And I, in, in my book, Win Every Argument, I have a whole chapter on, you know, do your homework, prepare, prepare, prepare. And it's amazing how many people in public life don't prepare for something as important as a live TV interview, for example. I interviewed the vice president of a country, I won't say which one, uh, a few years back when I was at Al Jazeera English, and I could hear them, their mic was open and they were saying to their assistant, so who's this person? What's this show? We're about to start the interview and now you're asking that question? Like That's a bit late in the day. Mm, yeah. When I think about conflict, there are parts of me that light up, like especially if I think I'm right <laughs> and then I'm prepared and I, I've covered all the bases, like let me add them. But there's sometimes when it comes to conflict, especially when it's something personal, something delicate, that my heart sort of contracts and I'm afraid of this conversation. Are there any conversations that you fear having? So the one I wrote about in my book, the, the time when my wife looked at me and said, I've never seen you this nervous before a public event, before giving a speech or a talk or engaging with people in a Q&A, was I was asked many years ago back in the UK when my older child was five or six to give a talk and do a Q&A at her Sunday school. And for me, that was intimidating and terrifying because it's children. And I talk about comfort zones a lot in my writing. Um, I was outside of my comfort zone. When I'm in my comfort zone, you put me up against a politician, you put me in a heated debate, you put me in an interview with someone where I've prepped and I've got my you know killer questions. I'm great, I'm fine. You put me in a room full of children, uh, who are going to ask things I have no idea what they're going to ask or how, who can't be easily dismissed. Um, yeah, I was terrified. I did a huge amount of prep for that. And I remember my, my wife was like, what is wrong with you? It's just, it's just Sunday school. You've, you've spoken in front of millions of people on live television. Yeah, but this, this is different. So uh, it's when I'm outside of my comfort zones that I'm most uncomfortable. I remember when I did, um, when I went on the uh, late night with Seth Meyers a few years back, as my first exposure to late night comedy in American television. 
what am I doing here? This is not me. What am I? This is, I can't do this. Be waiting in the ad break to be ushered out. And you have to do that kind of walk across the stage and take your seat in front of a live studio. And those are moments where, yeah, I'm as, I'm as terrified and nervous as the people I talk about in my book who, are, who don't like speaking in front of a crowd of five people. It's all about what you're comfortable with. And I'm comfortable in a certain place. I'm I'm comfortable in places that most people are not comfortable, but I get uncomfortable in other places where might people other people might be more comfortable, if that makes sense. Do you think, and you said that you you've basically been this way since you were a kid. For those who are hearing about your story, who've read your books, who've seen your work, who are just listening to this interview and they're thinking, God, I wish I could do that. I just don't think I'm wired that way. I just don't think I'm wired to have difficult conversations. I never have been, I never will be. Yeah. Do you think this is something that can be learned to be more, not only prepared, but willing to say hard things? So 100% it can be learned. And I think people have been put off from, you know, whether it's public speaking, whether it's debating, whether it's just arguing with friends or family, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, persuading people in other ways, maybe, you know, going door to door canvassing. People are intimidated by that, you know, and, and, and the joke that often does the rounds and, and Jerry Seinfeld tells the joke about how the polls that show that for Americans, the number one fear is speaking in front of a crowd. Number two is dying. And Seinfeld makes the point that if you're at a funeral, uh, you'll be more likely, you'd prefer to be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Um, that's how intimidated Americans are by speaking in public, or people in general. And that stuff can be learned. That stuff can be overcome. And and I, the reason I wrote my book, Win Every Argument, earlier this year, was because I'm firmly convinced that we're not all just born this way. Of course, some people are born with certain skills and certain you know uh, uh, tendencies, but the bulk of what we do, those of us in public life, whether you're a politician running for election, whether you're an interviewer on TV, whether you're someone debating on a panel, that stuff has to be uh, thought out. That stuff has to be understood. That stuff has to be prepared. Those people who think you just stand up and wing it, that's just not true. I wish that were true. It's not true. And, uh, you know, in the book, I give many examples of people going back to Demosthenes in ancient Greece, who's regarded as kind of the original badass of public speaking. He had a stutter. He was, uh, you know, he gave awful speeches. He was scared of standing up in front of his peers. He went and he goes and locks himself in an underground cave for six months and stands in front of a mirror, uh, practicing how to speak, runs up a hill uh, with stones in his mouth to overcome his stutter. Like people, and he goes on to become one of the great orators in human history, Winston Churchill, who today we make movies about and say, fight them on the beaches, stood up to the Nazis, uh, inspired the United Kingdom during World War II. This is a guy who was an awful public speaker when he started out, had horrible moments in the in Parliament where he got heckled and booed because he couldn't finish his speech. So even the people we regard as the greats in history of oratory are people who put the work in in order to become those people. And I, I look at my own career. You know, if you look at interviews or discussions I did 10, 15 years ago versus now, I would like to argue that I've improved because of experience, because of practice, because I've learned from others. So your latest book is called Win Every Argument. I've got to hear about an argument that you absolutely lost. Well, I, I, daily I lose arguments with my spouse, and I, I make that clear in the book, that the book is not for uh, marriage. That's a whole different ballgame. Um, but in terms of kind of public debate and argument, I, I love debating, and I've done a lot of debates with an organization called Intelligence Squared, which does debates in New York and in London. Um, and I mentioned a few of them in the book. One that I didn't talk about in the book, uh, but I will talk about now, was uh, one of the first debates I did with them years ago was during the Euro crisis. 
when the Eurozone was kind of melting down and Greece was kind of in default and Germany was furious. And we did a debate about whether Angela Merkel is destroying Europe and destroying Greece. And I was making the case against Merkel and the Germans and in defense of Greece. And what was interesting, my arguments were fine, but what I didn't do, and the opening chapter of my book is talks about winning over an audience, is I didn't read the room. That was a Intelligence Squared, it's pretty pricey tickets. And that crowd was very well-heeled international crowd in London, to the point where even the Greeks in the audience were not on my side. They were the kind of rich Greeks who think, oh, lazy Greeks have ruined it for everyone. It was a kind of banker crowd who weren't going to enjoy my populist, rabble-rousing, anti-banker, uh, kind of anti-neoliberal arguments. And afterwards, it was it was fairly obvious that that was not the way to win over that crowd. Whether I could have won over the crowd in any scenario is another is another conversation. But clearly what I had done turned up as a kind of lefty rabble rouser, populist, anti-banker, anti kind of the establishment. It just didn't work with that crowd. And we, we lost very badly that debate. And I remember coming away kind of thinking, what do you do in that situation? And I do talk a little bit more about the book about the importance of reading a room, the importance of adapting your, uh, your interview style, your arguing style, to who's in front of you. That doesn't mean you're two-faced. It doesn't mean you're behaving differently with different crowds. It just means that you are approaching people where they are. And that applies to whether I'm talking to your audience on this radio show, whether I'm doing my show on MSNBC, whether I'm doing an Al Jazeera show for a global audience, whether I'm going on Seth Meyers, totally different type of crowd. You need to understand where you are, whose questions you're answering, uh, who you're trying to win over. And sometimes we forget that. We're just kind of, we're a one-trick pony, which doesn't work in the world of communication. I wonder how much when you are preparing for a debate or an interview, which are sometimes one and the same, you know, you've done all this research and your team's done all this research. And so you're pretty solid about how you feel considering what you know to be true. But I also would like to hear about how you feel when you are humbled, be it on in front of a live audience or in your personal life. I think for some people being humbled is like an attack. And for some people being humbled is like a dopamine hit. Where do you lie in that? Well, look, I wrote a book called Win Every Argument. So obviously I'm not a person who likes losing. Let's just be very honest and blunt about that. And that goes back to my childhood. That goes back to playing board games with my kids. They know I don't spare them. Uh, but look, the reality is that there are lessons in life and, you know, uh, experience is everything. And there is a quote in the book from a BBC presenter who interviewed uh, Kanye West back when he was Kanye. Uh, who, who who has this line, like, you win some or you learn. And I think that is the right philosophy, that even when you lose, you have to turn that into some kind of personal victory. And the best way to do that is to say, all right, what did I get wrong? How did I lose? How can I do better next time? So when I interview someone, I remember uh, interviewing a Turkish minister uh, back in the day after the attempted coup in Turkey and the crackdown on dissenters. And I came with, I had all my stuff, the human rights reports and all that, and I went for him. And he was super smooth, super slick, smiling, just kind of dodged any kind of uh, zinger question that I thought I may have. Or, and I remember thinking afterwards, yeah, he he totally won that. He totally came out of that exchange on top. No one will watch that interview and think, oh, Mehdi got him or Mehdi held him to account. Why is that? And that, that for me makes me go and reflect. My team and I will sit down and say, all right, what do we get wrong? What can we do better next time? Where did we mess up? What did we not see? Where were we too arrogant or complacent? Uh, and that is the attitude I take. Otherwise, I would just have to go wallow. <laughs> Which isn't the worst thing. Um, 
when I'm in an interview, like right now, I feel connected with you. I feel like I'm in this flow state. There's some interviews where my mind is wandering and that's not, not good yeah, for the work. Really uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to hear about what that flow state does for you. Like how much are you drawn to this kind of work because you love that utter presence? And like, do you feel in some ways addicted to being in these moments of live, furious, exhilarating debate and interview? Addicted is an interesting word. Am I addicted to it? Maybe, probably, possibly. I do love it. And my wife always makes fun of me and says, well, your work's not work because you enjoy it. Said, That's not fair. I still work hard just because I enjoy it and love it. You can love your job. But I actually think it goes beyond the job because obviously I love doing what I do. And I have the privilege of having this MSNBC platform on the streaming network, on the cable channel on Sunday nights. I get this opportunity to sit down with Republican presidential candidates or White House officials or members of Congress. And A, that's a huge privilege that most Americans don't have to have those conversations, to hold those people to account, to ask tough questions. So I take that very seriously. But it's also it can be a lot of fun. It can be enjoyable. This week, I interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci on set, having interviewed him a few times during the pandemic on Zoom. It was great to actually sit down with him, have that chemistry, have a kind of both depressing conversation about how bad things are, but also a fun conversation about just uh, bonding, as you say, and having that flow. Um, so I take that all very seriously. I do enjoy it. I do appreciate it. But I think, I think you have to go beyond work because if I say, well, I love this stuff and I love the adrenaline and I love being on live TV, that makes me sound like a crazy attention seeker and egomania, and maybe I am. But the reality is I love it as much as if you said, if I go outside of this room and in my lounge right now or in my front room, there's two friends have come over and they want to have an argument with me about a movie we all saw and we didn't like, I will look forward to that as much as I look forward to Vivek Ramaswamy. So it's less about the platform and the size of the audience. Like I'll argue in an empty room, right? So it's just, I enjoy the clash of ideas. I enjoy the challenge of trying to persuade someone to come over to my point of view. I enjoy the back and forth. And yes, that flow, that chemistry, that connection. Some people get it in different ways. You know, they, they enjoy partying. Uh, they enjoy socializing and I enjoy socializing, but this is what I enjoy. Um, and it's not always a good thing. Like it can wreck a good social gathering when you get into an argument over the dinner table. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and got told off by my wife. Who have you not yet interviewed that when you think about doing it, you salivate? That is a good question. That is a good question. Um, well, the question I always get asked is, would you interview Donald Trump? And what would happen with Donald Trump? And I, my answer to that question always is, obviously, I, you know, I couldn't, I don't think I could turn down and interview Donald Trump, but it wouldn't last longer than two minutes is the reality. Like, he would get up and walk out within like a minute or two of my questions and realizing where I'm coming from. So it wouldn't actually be a sustained interview. Um, I like a challenge, right? People think I enjoy dunking on people, but actually I enjoy an intellectual I enjoy, you know, the very first TV interview I did, which kickstarted my career as a TV interviewer back in 2012, was with Richard Dawkins, the scientist, famous atheist. And it was in front of a live audience in Oxford, and it was for Al Jazeera. And it was really, really interesting because the guy, is, as much as I disagree with him, is clearly an intellect, a public intellectual. And it was really interesting back and forth on a very thorny issue of faith and God and organized religion. So when I think about like, who would I like to interview? I mean, someone for me as a Brit, as someone who moved here from the United Kingdom and who became politically 
radicalized, if you can use that phrase, during the Iraq war. Tony Blair is always someone on my list of someone I, I would love to be able to interview because as much as I loathe his politics and what he did, clearly a very smart, eloquent guy. It would, and no one's really able been able to lay a glove on him in interviews. I think John Stewart weirdly did on The Daily Show about a decade ago, but most interviewers, he kind of beats them. So that's the challenge and appeal. I think right now in American politics, it would be fun just to sit down with Ron DeSantis because I feel like Ron DeSantis is so prickly, so defensive, but so many kind of open goals. Um, it would be that would be a furious exchange. But again, like Trump, would he just walk out after two minutes? We have a real problem now where, you know, conservative politicians can retreat to their safe spaces on right wing television so they don't have to submit to tough interviews. Now, I don't endorse any sort of like violent or painful restraint. But if Trump had some very gentle handcuffs with furry bits inside, so he wasn't being hurt or anything. So he had to stay put. And he had to stay put. I mean, there's, what would you want to get out of him? It's a whole platter of things you could talk about. What would be the one thing you would hope you would get him to say? Well, it's, it's a great question because my philosophy of Trump would be one thing. The problem with Trump interviews in general, is that, you know, understandably, the interviewer wants to ask about lots of things. This is the former president of the United States. There's multiple stories. And he's involved in multiple controversies, whether it's abortion, whether it's his four criminal indictments, whether it's, uh, you know, his incitement of violence, whether it's his anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. And just doesn't work on someone like Trump, because I have a whole chapter in the book uh, about beware the gish galloper. Uh, and the gish galloper in debate circles is a person who overwhelms you, uh, beats you down with nonstop lies at, at rapid fire and doesn't allow you to respond to all of them, just kind of floods the zone with BS, to borrow a line for one of Trump's former advisors. And I think therefore the only way to really interview Trump is to pick one topic and not and not much, because he thrives on the interviewer moving on or going on to the next subject or not getting into depth. He can't handle depth, right, because he's a truly superficial person. So it's, I would just stick to one topic in detail, have one question, two questions, and like 10 follow-ups. And I think that would really be problematic for him because no one's ever really done it. And separately, just on a more lighter note, I've always wanted to do an interview with Trump where you just ask him fact questions. Like, what does NATO stand for? What is the price of milk? What's the capital of France? Just see what he does, because I don't think he can answer any of those questions. I would listen to that. Uh, I understand you're a big fan of the Marvel Universe. I am. Which superhero would you be? Unless you would make a whole new one up. Super Medi. Which superhero? Well, I guess uh, I am Mark Ruffalo's Hulk. Uh, in the original Avengers movie, whereas that's my secret, I'm always angry, I guess, is what my kids might say. Um, in that sense, although weirdly, and people laugh when I say this, for some reason, despite being this kind of brown, Muslim, lefty, immigrant American, I do love Captain America. What do you think little Mehdi would say if he could get a snapshot of your life right now, would he? how would he feel? I mean, would he be surprised that you are doing what you're doing? It's funny you should say that because the other day I ended up... So Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, uh, actually did a very nice tweet saying, I wish Mehdi Hassan could do all Trump interviews, to go back to something we said a moment ago. It was very nice. He's a big fan of mine. He's come on my show and he, and he tweeted this, I wish Mehdi could do all Trump interviews. I can only dream. It was a very nice, lovely tweet, which I thanked him for, but I ended up taking a screenshot and sending it to a bunch of friends of mine and family members on WhatsApp saying, if only 10-year-old Mehdi could see this as he sat on a Saturday afternoon watching a repeat of Star Wars uh, and Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and Return of the Jedi. So for me, like that, I think I wish I could give some high-minded answer, but the reality is 
10 year old or seven year old, I don't think I was watching Star Wars at seven, but 10 year old, 11 year old maybe would probably be stunned that the people from Star Wars actually like what I do for a living. And I try and tell my kids, isn't that pretty cool? And then they say, who's Luke Skywalker? Because too young. Which is painful. In terms of interviewing and this particular focus that I'm having you join me on, did I miss anything? Is there anything else you want to add? Maybe for those who um, are budding interviewers or in, in debate and they're like, I don't know, any sort of advice, anything at all open floor. The one thing I would say, especially on the American media scene, when it comes to doing interviews is there is an awkwardness to asking certain questions, whether it is uh, a Gail King or an Oprah Winfrey asking that kind of very personal question that some celeb has never been asked before. Or whether it's someone like myself who does more adversarial journalism with politicians who's saying to a John Bolton, for example, as I did, how do you sleep at night with all this blood on your hands? People don't ask those questions because they think, oh, seeing an invisible line, bit awkward, bit in your face. And there is an awkwardness there. And that is why people kind of end up doing softer interviews that I'd like them to do. And I would say the only way to get over that awkwardness is to do it, is just to do it. And that's why preparation is so important. Like practice is so important. Whether it's public speaking, I always say start with five people before you start with 500 or 5,000 people. Same thing with interviews. You know, do, do ask your blunter questions on the smaller scale with the lower level person before you get to the president of the United States. And I think that's so important because let's, we're all human beings. It is very hard, no matter what the politics of the situation is, to get in someone's face. We, you know, we have social norms. We don't want to, you don't want to upset someone. You don't want to be rude to someone, especially if someone's a guest on your show. It's like having a guest in your house. And you've got to overcome that because otherwise people who need to be held accountable won't be held accountable. And I think you just got, you just need to acknowledge it exists and you got to push through. Mehdi Hassan, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. That conversation you just heard was part of an episode we did with two other interviewers who are at the top of their game, Gail King and Z-Way. You can hear those other extended conversations right around this one in your podcast feed. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our courageous interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. You can stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf, and you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.